Welcome to this episode about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host. In this episode, we meet Chip Collins of Collins Group Realty. We talk about visiting the island as kids, some of the current growth challenges in the area, and how Charles Frazier's vision helped maintain the character of the island after Hurricane Matthew in 2016. We also learn about a couple of great charitable projects his team is involved in, and probably the most unique feature ever in a backyard as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Chip Collins is the owner and broker of Collins Group Realty, a residential and commercial real estate company with offices on Hilton Head and in Bluffton. Chip has been a local resident for 28 years to date and owner of the real estate group for 18 years. Chip, welcome to the show. Jay, it's a pleasure being part of what you have launched as such an exciting podcast, and I'm really honored to be here. Tell us how you were introduced to Hilton Head. Well, you know, I was thinking about that because you and I have got some similar history. You know, I came out of the Midwest, out of Ohio, born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. And we all know about that Ohio to Hilton Head connection. I don't know if you knew this, but back when I was uh, working first in, in, in real estate, with Seapons Real Estate Company, it occurred to me that it would be pretty neat to create a, a uh, Euro car sticker because I had thought about the fact that we could just... Uh, might as well spell Ohio differently down here. It's not O-H-I-O, it's O-H-H-I-O. And we we were using the lighthouse icon. So, so many years ago, I actually created uh, this this sticker that I used to, to, to uh, hand out to people from Ohio and to celebrate that Ohio Hilton Head connection that was so so meaningful to me. You know, we were you know, growing up, uh, and again, I, I don't know that you and I have compared dates, but I I was born in 1968, so it had to be the early 70s that we were first coming down to Hilton Head, which would have placed us into some of the first uh, villas in Sea Pines, of course, at that time. And what a great place to stay. You know, I was thinking about all the time that we grew up and all the years that we came. We, um, I've got, I've got two older brothers, and at one point. And when I had turned 16, it was the first time that we all drove down to Hilton Head uh, separately. And my parents were big fans of the Volvo cars. And we were sort of known in Dayton as, as that Volvo family. So at one point, we stayed at a house in Black Skimmer. We lined up all five Volvo cars with each driver positioned in front of it and thought it'd be fun to take a picture and send it off to to Volvo cars. So that kind of dates back about how long, you know, the Hilton Head has been part of my life. And, you know, as I as I grew up and, and decided that, that it was time to leave Ohio, uh, for good. That was back in 1992 after graduating uh, Denison University in 1991. And I spent a, a year, almost a year, in the corporate world in Washington, D.C., and just found that not to be uh, the perfect place for me. In fact, I, my, my mindset on that point was that the ladder uh, that I was climbing was leaning against the wrong wall. So I, I decided to surprise my, my manager at Pricewaterhouse uh, out of the blue and tell him that I was I was quitting this job and I was headed down to Hilton Head Island and he just looked at me like, <laughs> you know, like I had two heads. I mean, he he just couldn't believe it. And I packed up everything that I I owned at that point, which wasn't a lot, a uh, futon, a couple of cats and a bunch of other stuff I'd accumulated across the course of a year and made the plunge to head down to Hilton Head Island in, in the spring of 1992. OK, we're both 68ers, so let's play who's older. I'm May 25th. <laughs> 
<laughs> you got me just a bit on September 14th. So you're the one to blame for the Ohio Euro sticker that we see on all the vehicles. You know, somebody, and I don't, I don't I think it might have been the Euro company, uh, Euro sticker company. I really don't know. I, you know, it, it, they kind of took that over and I, I did have it uh, copyrighted or whatever the, you know, trademarked or whatever the case was was supposed to be, and of course, at that time, and still, uh, that that image of the lighthouse is really owned by Seapine's uh, uh, company. But they allowed me to use it, and it was really fun. I tell you what, at, at that time, when uh, I have two daughters, and um, and my first daughter was was old enough to sit in a car seat with me, a uh, bike seat with me, and and so it, it sat on the front handlebars of my mountain bike and we lived in sea pines and we would make a habit of putting her in that front seat of the bike. And I would have a supply of, of those initial uh, original stickers. And, and we would, uh, we'd drive down to Harbor town. And when Greg Russell, who I know has been on your show uh, many times, uh, we'd go down and say hello to him and wave to him while he was performing. And then we'd canvas the parking lot and I'd take those stickers, not stick them on cars. Of course, they still had their backing, but we would just tuck it between the glass and the seal of uh, of a car when it had an Ohio license plate. And it was just one of those great marketing memories for me because it was just so much fun. It was totally benign. People loved it. They would call afterwards and say, hey, thanks for the sticker. We'd be driving down the road. We'd see it on their cars and that sort of thing. And that was just really fun. And uh, But it, it took off. I think they sell them in all the stores now and things like that. But it's a totally different iteration. But yes, I'll take claim to being the, the originator of the O-H-H-I-O phrase and, uh, and bumper sticker. That's a fantastic idea to do and what a cool little gift and token you know for the people of ohio to, to take back with them what was your favorite thing to do when you came here on vacation well you know we were we were sea pinesers you know and and my wife carrie 25 and a half years now you know she was more of a palmetto dunzer if you will and and uh, and I, I kind of feel like those were different tracks. Uh, and once you kind of got into your track, you just kept going back to it. So we we just always enjoyed being in sea pines. And for me, you know, I I, I was I, I was thinking about that uh, the other day. And and I know Greg Russell is hoping to get his shows back live uh, this summer uh, as um, as maybe the COVID uh, situation uh, gets controlled. And I, and I thought back about one of those early times when I was way before I was driving, of course. And, and I remember having a friend in town with me on our vacation and we'd get on our bikes in that, you know, sort of early evening. And we'd, we'd ride our bikes through the trails of sea pines and head down to Harbor Town and, and go watch Greg Russell. And, and, you know, we were just old enough to be paying attention to girls at that time. And then there'd be some girls vacationing and you know, kind of have that sort of commonality and there's just this little flirtation to it. And there was another time where we would kind of wander down on the docks and see if we couldn't, they couldn't kind of, you know, co- uh, mingle with the folks down there. And that, that just was also magical. You know, you get back on your bike, it had set dark and you kind of meander through the the streets and the bike paths of Sea Pines. And it, that's just sort of the magic that I think kind of drove me back that I think typifies all of Hilton Head because it's just so lush it's just no other place like it. It's just so naturally beautiful. It's very laid back. It's there's no, you know, it's very dark at night and magical that way. So that that's probably some of my very best memories were just being out in the outdoors and enjoying all that the island had to offer. That was one of my favorite things to do was hop on my at the time 10 speed, ride around on the bike paths and there was a lagoon back across 
I think we were on nine, we were on either nine ocean or sea marsh, uh, as they were called at the time at yes. the plantation club. And, and there was a lagoon on the other side and there was a bridge that went over it. So I always went back over there. There was a little gator that I kind of watched grow up and maybe it was a different gator every year because I know they move <laughs> around, but I would always go back over there and there was always a, you know, little gator over there in that uh, lagoon. And I love to go to find it and take photos and, you know, obviously stay as far away as, <laughs> as possible, but right down the lighthouse, right down the South Beach, South Beach wasn't what it is today. Yes. You know, now one of the things I just love to do is go down to the brand new pier that they have and stand out there and look out over the Calabogie Sound and turn around and the lighthouse is there. And, you know, it's just so scenic and special when you got dolphins floating around and it's just such a wonderful place. Well, there's just nothing really like it. And I I know that I've got really good friends of mine that, that sell real estate up in Cleveland, Ohio. And we idea share all the time and they've got property down in Harbor Town and they've been coming for years and years. And But they've got to go back home and work up there. And, and they said, you know, Chip, it's impossible for you not to take for granted how beautiful it is and how lucky you are to be there year round. He said, just to put it in perspective, we spend more time going on the salty dog webcam and just looking at the live action and seeing of what's going on down there because we just miss it that much. So it, you know, you're right about it. It's just such a beautiful place. It's so fun and so relaxing. And you talk about those dolphins and all, all that kind of stuff. It's just each year that we just, we continue to admire it. Uh, more and more. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's in, in this, uh, maybe it happens in your fifties. I don't know, but my, my wife and I have become sort of more birders than we ever have before. And we start admiring the different, uh, the different birds that we see. And, and as of late, um, the elusive to us painted bunting is the one that we're, we're trying to see if we can actually spot. We see pictures of them all the time, but I don't know if you've ever seen one locally, but they're just uh, a magnificent bird. And we're, we're deeply on the lookout for it at our home. Now we've got multiple bird feeders out and we're just trying to attract this, <laughs> this beautiful bird. It's interesting. You bring up birds and we just recently moved up to Port Royal and our back deck area, you know, there's some other houses around, but it's really like a nature preserve. There's deer wandering around and just a ton of birds out there. A bird showed up the last time that we were there and we had never seen this bird before. And it was a small kind of finch sized little blue bird had uh, blue head, blue back and, you know, some other colors on it. My wife was like, what is that? And so we had to go look it up and it was a bird called the bluebird of happiness. And everybody was like, this is just so wonderful. And we didn't even know that bird existed. That's fascinating. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it it's just such a wonderful place from that perspective. And so it's fun that we sort of had a similar, similar childhood uh, here on the island. And, and, and what a, you know, just what, what a blessing to be able to come down here and ex- experience that kind of vacation. When you moved here in the early 90s, what was the area like? How was it growing? It's been quite a while now, obviously, and it is amazing how time flies. You know, back then, you know, and and I met Carrie again, my my wife now of over 25 years. Back then, we just you know I met her the first night that she moved uh, uh, to the island, and what a what a blessing for me that was. But but as it as it was back then, no cross island bridge, uh, which you know doesn't seem that hard to imagine for probably a lot of your listeners, but but for some it would be uh, because of how long it's been around. And I moved into Mariner's Cove. Uh, I got an apartment with one of my uh, very good friends and roommates from from Denison, and we got an apartment together up at Mariner's Cove. Now that's just right up there on Jenkins Island, which is you know technically separate from Hilton Head Island, where 
the, the bridge onto the island lands up there by Windmill Harbor. And it had this magnificent view across the intracoastal waterway. And it was a little two, you know, two story townhouse. And, and, but I tell you what, it was a long, <laughs> it was a long way from there all the way down into sea pines or, or, you know, more commonly for us, we spent a lot of time uh, down at that time. Wild Wing Cafe was located down at Caligny Plaza. And that was a long haul. In fact, one of my, my one of the first things that I did when I shed my suits, came out of D.C. and really swore not to wear that uh, to work again. I just wanted to have that island vibe. And I bought a 1978 uh, CJ5 uh, Jeep and worked on it with my good friend, Steve Desimone, who I worked for at that time as a small-time contractor. And and I remember Carrie and I, you know, we would make a, we, we always had to make a decision, especially in the wintertime with that drive, uh, you know, from the north end to the south end and vice versa in the Jeep. Do you do you go fast and get it over with quickly when it's cold in the wintertime? Or do you do you go slower and and sustain the colder temperature? And it was just it was just really a kind of a special time then. But it was very, you know, in the wintertime, it was it was very relaxed. It was very seasonal, uh, as I'm sure you remember. You know, most of uh, South Beach, uh, I recall sort of went dark. A lot of the food and beverage uh, folks uh, would migrate out west and go work the ski slopes uh, in the wintertime and have this, I think, pretty cool uh, dichotomy of, of being in the summer in uh, Hilton Head and the winter out there on the on the mountains. And it was just a big swing between summertime and, and wintertime uh, during that period of time. And, you know, we would pick up sandwiches on Sundays and we would go out to the beach and and it just would not be crowded at all. And, and we just hang out there all afternoon on a Sunday and just play volleyball and all that kind of stuff. It was just a very special time in life. It seems like the island these days is almost year round with tourists, especially with the whole quarantine COVID thing going on. Uh, for reference for people, this is being recorded in May of 2021 for those who might be listening down the road. I was down there during the move and over the winter some and for Christmas. And you walk out on the beach and you're like, man, it's like the 4th of July out of here. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, last year really with COVID has done so much to in so many ways, but in in that vein, it really created uh, as soon as it was a possible and people were comfortable doing so, a massive flow of people to the island. And in fact, October of 2020, uh, according to the Chamber of Commerce and other uh, businesses that track it, say it was the very best uh, October in the vacation rental business that they had ever seen. And even moving here into 20. One, you know, we there have been weeks uh, that were that atypically were at 100% occupancy already just in the in the first part of this year. So it's very clear that that our marketplace has become much more well-rounded. Some of that driven uh, by COVID and uh, the items that you mentioned. Uh, some of that dr driven by the fact that snowbirds have always wanted to come down and and visit, stay here. You know, January, February, March, that sort of thing. But you know, honestly, a big part of it is just driven by the overall population of the island being much more concretely year-round. You know, I, I just laugh. You've got 250 or something restaurants on the island, and 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 they all stay open seemingly all year long. And and we used to enjoy that, you know, sort of in the transition years because you sort of had the benefit of not having to 
wait online for any of these restaurants like you do in the summertime. And and now, you know, it seems like uh, so many of them are so busy just really year round. It's, it's just become uh, that kind of community and place to live. Why did you get involved in the real estate industry there? And who were you working with? Well, you know, it's I, I didn't when I was when I was working in a, with my, my buddy, Steve Desimone, and, and he had a small time contracting business. I, I was just so glad to just be out working in the world and not in an office and all that good stuff. But but I knew that probably about eight months into that, that that was probably not my long term position. And and I had I had goals that I wanted to achieve. So I, I started working with a property uh, management company, a company that manages villa complexes and predominantly on the south end of the island, of course. And, and I spent four years in that business and I met a lot of people and I met a lot of contractors and I made a lot of connections and, and I, I learned a lot of patience. I don't know anybody who's listening who's ever worked in property management per se knows that that's more of a complaint business and a problem business than it is anything else. So four years of that sort of built up uh, an armor for me and a, an awareness of the marketplace. And and I just decided that that was enough of that and I needed to move into into uh, something different. And and Paul Franks Sr. was the broker of charge in um, at Seapines Real Estate Company at that time, uh, which was the largest real estate company uh, in the area. And that was, um, that was right in 1997. Uh, January, he he offered me a position. I, I remember sitting in a, an office that he gave me right across the hall from him. And I just learned so much from him and his his vast experience and uh, being part of that that great company at that time. And that's really what launched uh, launched my career. I've, you know, I've been at it now for, for 24 years. I was speaking with a real estate agent in Louisville recently. She was telling me that Louisville currently has a 15-day supply of houses for sale. Typically the healthy market here is six to seven months, which I believe is the healthy market most any place. What is the real estate market like on the island and in the Bluffton area right now? Well, you know, it's it's followed that same trend. I mean, it, we've all heard about it now. It was news that we were breaking back in July and August of last year that things were heating up and that real estate was sort of the new fad, uh, you know, triggered in great part uh, by COVID. And so I think nationwide, we all know uh, what's happened in the real estate market. And the same thing's true here. I mean, it, it we, we have seen, and everybody says it, you know, it, people that, that try to describe the market that we're in, the best word anybody can sort of come up with is crazy. And that's repeated. You know, we're seeing anybody, it doesn't matter if you've been in the business for, for 10 years or 50 years, you've never seen conditions like this where inventory is just so tight. You're absolutely right. You can be down to, to literally days worth of inventory when prior to COVID, you know, we were looking at a marketplace that locally that was just in its third year of of true recovery. We were probably tracking uh, maybe a seven percent gain year over year through the first quarter of 2020, and and that was on top of 18 and 19 being up maybe three, four, five percent themselves after you know the big crash that, that came down in in 08, 09. But but now we're just in this in this modality where there are there are multiple offers. Uh, you know, we had a, a property we put on the market last night uh, or at the end, yesterday afternoon at the end of the day. And last night we had five offers on it. Um, that's a million dollar property. There's probably five more showings on it today. That sort of thing where there's just this massive appetite that that I 
and you probably want to think has a lot to do with the beauty and the appeal of the low country, which certainly it does. But but this story is being repeated across, you know, seemingly all all states and all areas. And it's just it's unprecedented and a little bit still a little bit hard to digest when everybody's looking at it and just can't quite believe what the level of demand is versus the, the supply of inventory. What do you forecast for the next six months or a year? Do you see this continuing to stay heated? Do you think it's going to overheat? Uh, Do you see this possibly just subsiding back to somewhat normal or is this going to just completely crash? Well, you know, that that's it's always great to ask for predictions. and, And I used to be pretty good at them when the cycles were a lot more clear. Right, right now, I, I can basically say this, and unless b- barring something of, of great significance in the economy, which I don't think we're expecting to see uh, happen in the U.S. In fact, I think there's a burgeoning economy. I think that people will be traveling more. I think that there's going to be more spending and more confidence. And so I think the economy is going to do just fine, and that's going to help this do just fine. So I think I think people are excited about owning real estate. I think they're, we're going to continue to probably have a, a high level of retention in real estate. Uh, even though people may see these high prices, the big story that we tend to see is: listen, I I would love to sell. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to take advantage of the of the prices that I see in the relevant or comparable comparable properties to mine. But where would I go? Uh, I, I don't have a choice to, to to move to, and so I think there's a lot of people that are just kind of committed to holding on to to what they have. So I expect that inventory probably uh, will not spike anytime soon, and I really don't see a slowdown to demand. I mean, in the month of April here in 21. We had the highest level of buyer inquiries that we've ever historically seen dating back to when we originated our our website back in 2007. So, you know, these are just they're just, uh, as, as I said, they're just sort of crazy and unprecedented times. And I think I think that we're probably not going to see a slowdown to it. The only, the only thing I'll say is that I think that that nationwide and if if you look at sort of. Uh, the the trade uh, trade magazines and the articles that take place and Realtor.com pushes out information and Inman puts out information, et cetera. There are a couple of different camps. Um, some are calling that this may be a, another you know housing bubble that's about to burst. And, and then there's others that say, no, this is sort of probably the new standard of what real estate is like maybe in the United States of America. H- hard to say exactly, but, but I'll say this about the comparison to when we all know what the crash looked like and, and the recession that followed back in 08 is that back then there were, there were you know, the, the major issue was that lending guidelines were loose and uh, and there was just a, there was just not a lot of equity uh, in the marketplace at that time, and there were probably a lot of people getting loans that probably today wouldn't stand a chance of getting those loans on second, third, fourth investment properties, flips, etc. And and this market has just been a lot different. Uh, getting loans is a lot more stringent. It's a lot more serious. The guidelines have all been in place since the crash and correction of the market. And, and you know, people seem to be buying real estate for real reasons, meaning. They want to occupy it. it your home in Port Royal, uh, you necessarily, therefore, don't rent that property out. So that's not part of your play. You want to have that as a home that you can get to and maybe come here and work from. And and so that real reason of why people are buying real estate, to me, tells me that it's not sort of the ATM market approach that we saw back in, you know, 05, 06, 07, where you, you, know, you bought a piece of real estate just to kind of put it in the ATM machine, pull it out, make money and, and sell it quickly. That's not at all 
the appetite and, and behavior of what we're seeing. So that gives me a lot more confidence that there's more stability in this market than than maybe what we faced back then unknowingly and, you know, just prior to the crash. The Bluffton area and Hilton Head, of course, has seen explosive growth recently. Let's talk a, a little bit about the Bluffton side. We've talked with some other folks about the Hilton Head side, but in Bluffton, what do you see as some of the challenges with that growth? We all know that, that traffic... <laughs> Uh, on and off uh, the island and through the area uh, continues to be a challenge. Although the Bluffton Parkway, the Blu- the, the uh, Buckwater Parkway, and secondary road systems that that they have the benefit of putting in uh, in the more expansive uh, Bluffton area certainly help from that perspective. But you know, the big I think the big challenge that we have locally uh, and maybe nationally too is. Um, is really truly affordable housing. You know, we talk about low inventory of homes for sale, that the inventory for homes and properties for rent is equally low. And of course, you know, with supply and demand, you know what happens with pricing. So we start seeing these sort of unbelievable monthly rental rates for uh, for long-term housing that it just is not affordable to a certain segment of the workforce. So that's one of our biggest challenges. And I know that the area overall, the government agencies, et cetera, have that right square in their crosshairs. But I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we see. There's there's more land, there's more growth, there's more opportunity, obviously, in, in the mainland than there is on the island. So you start seeing these developments open up. And now you, if you drive down New Riverside, uh, past Palmetto Bluff, uh, you're going to you're going to continue to see development, you know, all the way down there towards theoretically uh, down 170, all the way down towards the border, and and it just seems like that's going to continue to happen amid, amid this urban sprawl. So it's it's pretty exciting, and you know, one of the things that I that I've really admired in the area locally as that's taken place is you know there seems to be a commitment to to honoring open space and creating parks and environments for people to, to spend uh, time outside and to preserve uh, so that not every last uh, stitch of land uh, gets developed. And so that, that's that's something I've really enjoyed in, in, the, in Old Town uh, Bluffton. There's quite a few new parks that have been established and, and people are flocking to them and they're really, really nicely enjoyed. And I know there's other recreational and other sort of opportunities that are that are being incorporated into development, uh, you know, further out west towards 95. So it, I'm, I'm glad to see that that pairing is taking place. Is there one thing infrastructure-wise that came along that you think really changed the island or the area? That's a great question. And again, you and I have got a, a pretty similar history to the area. I would say that that, a, that you know one area that that I I saw as a as a pivot and a change, you know, back in, in the early 90s when when we first lived here, in fact, my wife worked at the Shelter Cove Mall, and and that was sort of the big center outside of of perhaps Caligny Plaza that has a high concentration of businesses. You know, it was the indoor mall, and and that was sort of the 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 midpoint of the island, and and a lot going on there with restaurants integrated and that sort of thing. And when that sort of uh, effectively changed, morphed, and and in great part was torn down and reworked now into the Shelter Cove Town 
Town Center. That's an area that for me, you know, just speaking in terms of, of, as I just mentioned, open spaces and parks, if you haven't visited that location, uh, I just love what they've done there. It, it's, got a, it's got a great architectural appeal. It's got integration uh, right uh, into the natural beauty right there on the marshes of Broad Creek. Uh, it's got a, a beautiful park that's set up with nice restaurants that have outdoor dining and stores and sort of some compelling names that have come in there. So for me, that sort of has has you know been an emblem of uh, in the time that I've been here of how things have sort of changed commercially at least and 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 while I think Hilton Head maybe doesn't exactly and maybe never will really have a, an absolute town center I like what they've done there and I like how how that's developed and I and I feel like that sort of is reflective of of sort of the new Hilton Head it definitely is fantastic. We love going over there and just walking around and getting into more of an outdoor mall setting versus the indoor closed in. It just allows you to be out in nature and enjoy the sunshine and the palm trees and, and all that. Now, I'm a big believer in that The once they got rid of the swing bridge, which was in the sometime in the 70s and, and got to the bridge system that they have now, I think that the Cross Island Parkway made just a gigantic difference in getting traffic to the south end of the island because 278 the business side of it just became an absolute nightmare it took you forever to go 12 miles boy well you're absolutely right and as i was recalling earlier you know we used to go all the way up you know business 278 uh, between the south end and all the way up to the base of the bridge, leaving the island, and it made for a long, uh, long ride. And and the cross island, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, in terms of the flow of of traffic, I think made a huge difference. And you know, we're coming up now uh, after all these years, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but but the the toll period is uh, is soon to end on that. They'll be uh, demolishing the toll plaza. And reworking that into, I think, an extension of a median. And there's there's drawings out there on the South Carolina Department of Transportation site, I'm sure, that show what that's going to look like. But it's pretty amazing to think about how pivotal that has been and yet how many years it's been in place for us all, to, all of a sudden to be at the end of the toll period. On the personal side, you own a very historic home in the area. Tell us about that house. It's quite something. And, and to say that I own it, there's a, a lot of humility in that because th this home is... Uh, you know, I think by records that I've seen is at least the oldest home in southern Beaufort County, if not even extending uh, into uh, uh, deeper into northern Beaufort County. It was, you know, records show that it was built around about uh, 1795. Uh, so this summer, that makes it around about 226 years old. And uh, it, it's a pretty special property. And we really... You know, we're, we're really more custodians of it at this point. I mean, you know, you look back at the, at the long history of owners and, and the different families that have had it through different generations. And, and we just sort of humbled by the opportunity to, to call it our home for this period of time. There is a very unique feature that you have in your backyard. What is that? <laughs> well, this, this home is situated on the, uh, on the bluffs of May River in Old Town uh, Bluffton, and it's adjacent to the Church of the Cross, which is just such a picturesque uh, landmark, you know, at, at uh, just right on the bluff in Old Town Bluffton. And of course, with the history 
uh, dating back to um, think wealthy planters that that found Bluffton to to and the, the bluff in particular to be this sort of southern facing uh, elevated up on the river location was ideal for building a, a summer home to get away from the, the plantation fields and all that kind of stuff and and so through through time one of the owners uh, was a Colonel Seabrook and. Um, uh, prior to the Civil War, the understanding is that he was a plantation owner or planter, and but he's also a fisherman. And so they'd, they'd head out into the river and theoretically down into the Calabogie Sound, a trip that we take often as we go down to uh, another property we have uh, down in Harbortown. And I sometimes think about that, this little story as we as we take that trip, because, you know, we do it on a nice motorboat and all that kind of stuff, but things were different back that, at that time. And and the story is that, that uh, you know, when they were casting nets and fishing, that they it, the nets got hung up on something. And so they dove down to see what it, it was. And at that point, uh, they located a Revolutionary War cannon. And this cannon uh, theoretically dates back 1700s and was, um, I think, maybe forged in Sweden or something like that. And anyway, I, I don't know how they possibly did this because I can only imagine how heavy the thing must have been. But they they pulled that thing up and, and not only did they get it in the boat, and transport it, but then they got it all, all the way up the 15 or 20 foot bluff, and they put it up on a on a base of brick uh, and and pointed out to the um, out to the river, and there it sits. It's been there ever since then. And uh, the story is that that the only time that they ever tried to fire it, of course, it was never set up to be uh, <laughs> any kind of armament. But the, apparently, the time that they fired it was when when these uh, fellows were all part of a the political movement at that time, uh, looking to um, potentially secede from the Union uh, with South Carolina and I'm no I'm no history buff or historian but but at that time uh, when the state had decided to be the first to do that uh, these guys uh, all got together and decided to celebrate that by by trying to fire this cannon and I think there's some I think there's some documentation that these guys who really didn't know what they were doing just about killed themselves in the process but theoretically that's the only time the cannon has ever been fired. Uh, was at that moment in history, and otherwise it just sits there in the backyard. So that was the Civil War version of "Hey y'all, watch this." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hold my, hold my ale. <laughs> <laughs> hold my ale. That's fantastic. So if anybody ever decides to visit Chip's house and you come by boat, uh, you better have been invited. So that's the the one lesson right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's the here's the thing. It's pretty fascinating about it. And there's a great book by an author, um, Jeff Fulgham, who is a local historian. Uh, and he himself has um, has served in the armed services. But the book is called The Bluffton Expedition. It's a great read. It's a quick read. And as I, I, I remember just diving into it after we moved into the house and wanted to learn more about the history of the area, it speaks in particular about the burning of Bluffton in uh, 1863, where about you know, two-thirds of the town structures were burned by the Union troops. But prior to doing that, uh, the way Jeff writes it and all of his great research, uh, he found these um, uh, Union records about how they 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 basically came over in the, the prior spring and just needed to understand if there was any armament or forces uh, or anything of major concern that existed in the town of Bluffton, which was really at that time vacated and very quiet. And so the Union troops, they, they came over, they sent a thousand troops or so over and they had water support and, and they came in and they checked out the town and they found nary a gun uh, or anything, but in their... In their comments, they said the only thing we really found uh, of any note was an old cannon that had been positioned up on the backyard of a home 
uh, on the uh, on the bluff. And I just thought, you know, as I sat there and read it, and I looked out there at the cannon, I thought, boy, that's pretty that's pretty neat that it's just still sitting there, and it yet was recorded all that long time ago. Not everybody has an amazing piece of history sitting in their backyard. <laughs> No, we feel very fortunate. It's, it's 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 pretty compelling. You've been in the area quite a long time, run a very successful real estate operation. You're also very involved in the community. One of the things that I think is very, very neat that you created is a very unique nonprofit service to the community. Tell us about the community vehicle. Well, that, you know, that <laughs> we're, we're now a fleet, uh, which is kind of funny because uh, just about a year ago, we bought a a second truck. These are your two 15 foot box trucks, basically your, your typical moving truck, uh, but something that, that a everyday person can drive without being too worried about it. And the new truck is just a, a year, a year and a half old. Uh, and the original truck is over 20 years old, uh, still in service. It's gone through a bunch of different wrapping as we've kind of changed, you know, our our branding and and uh, uh, and the look of the vehicle over time. But, you know, it, it, it's probably serviced you know, understated hundreds of local organizations that, you know, our motto is sort of, you know, everybody needs a truck once in a while, but nobody wants to own one. So let us do the owning and you can do the using. And and so you take a, a nonprofit organization, a church, a school uh, that, you know, just really doesn't have the, the need for a full-time vehicle. And we fill that uh, by allowing them to use the truck to further their needs. And it may be for a special event. It may be to set up for the, that event. I remember when we had the, uh, the uh, celebrity golf tournament uh, for years and years and years on the island, every year they would use it. And that's where they would store all the players' golf clubs overnight in a secure uh, on-site location. So it, it's just had a great uh, impact from our perspective throughout the, the community. And, it, and while it is, you know, when you manage a, a truck, a fleet of trucks now like that, uh, there is, there's manpower and administrative work on it. And every once in a while, you got a tire that goes bad and you've got to go in the shop and things like that. But generally speaking, it becomes uh, our way of being a little bit more passive in terms of our involvement, because you got to come to the office, you got to pick up the truck, you go utilize it, you fill it back up with gas and you bring it back. The thank yous we get, the acknowledgement that we understand of the impact it's having on on just a wide variety of organizations and, of course, clients uh, as well has just been, um, you know, it's, that's why we've had it for, you know, that's why we doubled up and why we've had the original one for over 20 years. That operation's 20 years old. More recently, you have started a community results project. And for 2021, your partner is Deepwell. Tell us about the partnership and what you are trying to accomplish. Well, th- thank you. And maybe just tying that together, we're really excited about it. You know, we, we, we wanted to add another tier to our community involvement. Uh, in, in the, the concept is, you know, take care of the community that takes care of us, but also just have that altruistic outlook. And we just want to make this the best place to live that it could possibly be. And so every year we have partnered with Deep Well for as long as we've had the truck. Uh, we have done a food drive for them on the island leading up to uh, the Thanksgiving timeframe. And, and we basically fill the truck uh, with donations uh, that we collect door to door through uh, select neighborhoods. And that's just been really, really fun. And so Deepwell has always been a, a great partner with us. And we've been proud to support their, you know, their efforts in the community. What I wasn't acutely aware of is just how how wide and varied uh, their outreach really is. I think a lot of people, when they think about Deepwell, uh, probably can imagine maybe two or three facets of it, but but they've got at least a dozen different facets of things that they've got running in the background as part of their support and outreach for 
the community. And one of them is called livable housing. And, and the concept on that is that is that they get they get calls from people that don't have the wherewithal, the means, the understanding, uh, the pride or otherwise to 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 acknowledge that their that their structures are in need of support in order for for making them you know truly inhabitable, and that could be from uh, you know stairs that, that lead up to the the structure, or maybe to a mobile home that are decrepit, to a roof that's leaking, to plumbing issues, to to floors that are falling in. The list, as it's been enlightened to us as of late, just goes on and on and on. And so we're partnering with them. To sort of, you know, from our perspective, we wanted to have an opportunity when we launched this community results project each year, we want to partner with a local needs organization and just kind of be a turbo booster for them without being heady. We just want to be able to have an opportunity to connect with them and maybe build awareness, uh, maybe help them uh, with fundraising uh, you know, into our sphere of influence and into our audience, whether it's volunteerism or whether it's in-kind donations or whether it's dollar donations. We've just locked that down with them. And we're really, really excited about, uh, you know, we're going to be working on some some videography and some other pieces that we can put together and, again, help maybe take our marketing experience and staffing and, and maybe just turbo boost a little bit about what that particular cause is and see if we can help them here in the year 2021. That's a wonderful thing that you're you're doing to help the community. Did you happen to know or ever get the chance to meet Charles Frazier? I never got the opportunity uh, to to know Charles uh, directly. I think our paths and our timelines were varied uh, enough that that we just didn't connect that way. However, his uh, I've met his his uh, his wife uh, Mary, and I'm quite fond of of Mary because of of her. You know, Charles is out uh, developing sea pines and and other areas of the island, and and I think one of the things that Mary was committed to was creating a unique schooling opportunity, and so she she really was at the at the origin of the Sea Pines Montessori School, which is a, a phenomenal uh, educational organization and one that we had the the opportunity to, to put both of our daughters through, and we can attest directly just in terms of the way that they've developed and the confidence that they have and the skill sets that they have. That was really just a, a very wonderful benefit of her particular work. And and their their um, daughter has been a very good friend of mine through the years. Uh, and it's more of my peer. Uh, so Laura Lott and I stay in good uh, communication and connection. And, and and they've got property up in North Carolina. And we had an opportunity to go uh, visit uh, her and her mother. And they've got it in this piece of land they've got up there. They've got uh, a lot of storage of filings and documents and that sort of thing. And it it really is sort of a historical library of all of Charles's work. And it was just, you know, just amazing to walk through and be in the presence of all those photographs and all those documents and all that sort of stuff was, was really, really neat. So I've, I've kind of, I've steeped and understood and benefited from the things he's done in his life, but, but we were, uh, we, we never had the opportunity to spend time together. A lot of developers these days, their policy seems to be no tree standing. You know, they may leave a few around, but a lot of them go in there and they just clear cut everything and start building. How amazed are you at the foresight that he had? His policy was you better have a dang good reason to cut a tree down. And what that meant for really not only sea pines, but Hilton Head in general, because he helped make those restrictions for building heights and, and clearing 
property, but also in Bluffton. I mean, Bluffton has maintained a lot of the original character of what that was like. Well, I, I do think it's fascinating. And I, and I, you know, clearly he was a visionary well ahead of his time. And, uh, and I, and I've listened to your interviews talking about the, those, those first trips when the architects and designers were, were helping to team up and understand and, and get their head wrapped around the space and, and walking through that, you know, that, uh, maritime jungle. And it really is preserved to the point where I don't know if what, what your acute experience was after Hurricane Matthew, but when Matthew came through in October of 2016, I had the occasion, uh, to be able to get on the island. Uh, pretty quickly, then really within the next uh, day, day and a half after the storm had passed and and landed back at our house at, at Calabogie Cay and Sea Pines and carved my Jeep out of my, my you know, tree-damaged garage and, and was able to do a lot of exploring and videotaping and, and Facebook Live presentations at that time. And and I just couldn't, you know, I love the nature component of our area so much that it was really sickening. I mean, it to see these amazing trees and, of course, the damage to structures, but just to see massive oak trees down and, and pine trees that were you know, twisted and torn and plopped down. And you, you never really appreciate how big the volume of any particular one tree is until it's down on the ground. And, and then when you're, you know, it's just a, a war zone of it uh, was something that I'll never forget. And and I remember when the all the the claw trucks came through and and they were cleaning up all the debris and and all that that lasted for months and months and months and it was just a constant reminder of what that natural loss was, but but you know once all that was cleaned up, and and you still drove through the sea pines and any area on the island for the most part, unless there were massive microbursts, which did happen in some locations, you still had just a phenomenal amount of tree coverage in the area to where the point is that you you missed it, but not really. I mean, to someone who looked at it anew, you wouldn't have any sense that this got clear cut or anything like that. So the volume of what has been retained, it was just, it's just remarkable. And I think that that vision is uh, is fantastic. And as I understand it, to your point, it it continues in in great part, I think, with a good bit of developers and ongoing architectural review boards to this day to honor what it is that is that natural beauty that makes the low country so unique. I don't think he really gets enough credit really nationally for being the first responsible environmental developer in the country and setting these trends? Probably not. Uh, You know, time moves on and and people take things for granted and and maybe other people take credit for it. But I think that that when questioned and you've got developers that have learned from what they've seen here and they've applied it, that, that I'm sure that they give credit where it's due. And it's just such an honor, you know, to be able to work and live and enjoy a, a community that, that really was at the at the forefront of that kind of outlook. Chip, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your insights about Bluffton and Hilton Head Island. And we thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You can find out more about Collins Group Realty at collinsgrouprealty.com. They have a great current blog about the real estate market, and there is also a section about the community results project on their website as well. If you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to subscribe and leave us a review. Until next time, safe travels down 278 to Lighthouse Road.